Welcome to Movie Maker. My name is Tim Malloy, and today our guest is Trayvon Free. You may know Trayvon Free from his stand-up comedy or from his two Emmys for his work on The Daily Show and Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. He's extremely funny, but now he's written and co-directed the film Two Distant Strangers that uses the time-loop setup of comedies like Groundhog Day and Palm Springs to deliver a message that is heartbreakingly serious. Rapper and actor Joey Badass stars as a friendly, gentle-hearted guy who wakes up at a young lady's house, leaves to go about his day, and gets shot by a police officer for a terrible reason. He wakes up, and it happens again. And again. Free wrote it in five days, over the summer, and got backing from supporters like Adam McKay, NBA star Kevin Durant, Sean Combs, Lawrence Bender, and Jesse Williams. He and his team then shot it in five days. And it's coming soon to a platform near you, but I can't tell you which one yet, as we'll discuss in the interview. It's kind of a wild west for distribution right now, and Two Distant Strangers is the kind of genre-defying short that could really stand out and make a difference with the right audience on the right platform. We also talk about the incredible way Trayvon Free scored his first breakthrough on The Daily Show. Let's just say he came very prepared. Also, stick around for the incredible advice slash pep talk that he gives at the end of the interview for aspiring writers. And now, Trayvon Free, writer-director of Two Distant Strangers. So Trayvon Free, welcome to Movie Maker. I'm really excited to talk about your film. Um, Thanks for having me. Just to begin, you grew up in Compton. I grew up in San Pedro which is one city away in Carson. Yeah. So we're about 15 minutes apart. This film obviously is about interactions with police. And I know what my interactions with police were like. You growing up in a really similar area, what were your interactions like? It was, it was, a, lot of, it was a lot different from my friends I discovered <laughs> as, I, as I grew up. I mean, my interactions were oftentimes getting pulled over for no reason or, uh, you know, being stopped for no reason. Um, I, I don't think I've, I've rarely had an interaction with a police officer that um, warranted the interaction, if, if that makes sense. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I got pulled over for having a nice car. <laughs> um, literally the guy was like, where'd you get this car? <laughs> how long have you had it? Um, uh, I got pulled over once for uh, for looking at a police officer. Wow. Um, like literally, they, they say these things. I remember having a conversation with one of my friends or a group of my friends in a car once. They were all white, and uh, we were talking about you know getting pulled over by the cops and when and the reasons or how they happened. And when I started telling them what was happening to me, they were like, "That's never happened to me in my life." Like being asked, "Are you on probation or parole?" Is there a weapon in the car? Are there drugs in the car? They've like, they've never been asked those questions. And I'm like, that's so routine. <laughs> like, that's every stop for me, even like no matter what it's for, even the, the handful of times I've gotten a ticket that was like justified, it was still like, uh, are you on probation or parole? Is there anything in the car I should know about? It's like, uh, no, I'm, I'm just a regular person who <laughs> you're stopping for a traffic infraction. Um, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, you don't know it's different until you have something to compare it to when you're growing up, when you're a kid, when you're younger. Yeah. When you grow up and you realize, oh, everyone's been having a different experience. What's the norm for me is not the norm for everyone. Yeah. 
And so it's just, yeah, it's always been crazy. Where did you first get the idea for this film and when did you first get this idea? So after, <clears throat> after the George Floyd murder happened, I, uh, you know, we're all at home, supposed to be confined to our homes. And I, I just kept seeing the news stories of, of this, this cycle of violence that we experience. And, and you see the list of names continue to grow. And, you know, I just, I started thinking, you know, like, what, what, it feel, what does it feel like? How can I make people feel what I feel like watching this cycle repeat itself over and over again? And, you know, how do we break it? And I don't necessarily know the answer to that. And I feel like that was the film, which is like, you know, watching someone attempt to try to change what they're going through in this scenario where they keep encountering a police officer and they don't know how to stop it. Yeah. And that helplessness that you feel when everything you try over and over and over again is just continues not to work. And so that's how I started to feel watching these stories happen because you saw uh, the Ahmaud Arbery story followed by Breonna Taylor and then George Floyd. And you're like, Jesus, man, like, can we just like get a breather? Can we just, you know, stop this cycle from happening? And Tatiana Jefferson and all these people who kept popping up in the news. And if the repetition, when, when you feel like it can be you at any given moment, yeah. the repetition weighs on you. And so I tried to channel that into the film and I wanted Carter's character to embody that feeling that we all feel as as black people when it comes to you know just any random encounter with a police officer yeah the idea of the time loop i mean we've seen it in groundhog day and we saw it with palm springs but in those it's kind of comedic kind of tragic i mean in this one it's just straight up tragic and you're a comedian by trade i mean yeah. a comedy writer by trade was it hard to resist the urge to try to find something funny or try to make that point with humor? It's just it's yeah. relentlessly unfunny. I mean, it's, it's. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the moments that make up Carter's life throughout this 28 minutes is their moments of, of love and, and little, a little bit of levity in, in his interactions with Perry. And then you start to see at times there's a little bit of, uh, sarcasm in his interactions with Merck. And it's, it's one of those things that when we started making the film, as when I was writing it, I knew it couldn't be too comedic. Yeah, it just couldn't be it could be grounded in its realism of how of sarcasm and, and, and some kind of level of jokes, but it couldn't be just straight up funny because it's a thing that to, to many people is just not a funny thing. It's, a, it's, it's so real that even if I tried to write the most comedic version of it to satirize it and make it over the top, it's still a subject that's so raw for so many people. And so it, as I was writing it, I wanted it to be funnier and it didn't want to be funny. <laughs> Like my natural instinct was to like, okay, I got to give people a break or like I have to put a joke here. And there was some, there actually was more comedy in it that got cut out that we, when we were editing the movie, we just had to take out like, and those scenes were mostly with him and the girl. Um, but 
it it just it didn't want to be that it wanted to be you know what it was and it came it came together we thought that beautifully yeah yeah there's this maybe naive idea that a lot of people have and i have personally and i've had over the last week with looking at everything with trump people thinking if americans talk to each other more they would they would find out that they're not that different that they have a lot of commonality yeah one of the things that blew me away about this movie is that him and the cop do finally talk and it doesn't really help no it doesn't he thinks it does but it doesn't and it's it's one of those things you know i've experienced i have friends who are cops who i grew up with black guys who i went to school with and um i have one really good uh, white friend who's a detective in, in new york and i talk to them about these issues a lot because not only do i get their perspectives as black and white men, but I also get their perspective as friends. And there is definitely a line where you can see where being in the institution has creates a certain mindset. And, yep. and so for, for them, I can only convince them of so much in terms of how I feel as a civilian and about their job, about their profession and how I think they can do it differently. And as black men, they kind of toil with this idea because they're experiencing both sides of it. And so it, it's a very uh, heavy thing for them mentally to have to carry around uh, being a black man and being a police officer. and. And one of them, he tries, he tries really hard to, to, to weigh the difference and separate them. But there's really, it's really difficult to separate those two when if you take the uniform off, the very people you work with see you differently than they do when you wear it. And then when you put the uniform on, the community sees you differently when you wear it. And they see you differently for being a Black man wearing it. And so it's one of those things where even them being black and having the understanding of how we feel as black people, they've still been trained past a certain point to believe at a certain point, uh, you're wrong. Like you're just, you're being paranoid and the criminal element of society uh, matters more than how you feel about casual interactions with police officers. And that's a thing that I think is very difficult to change and, and very difficult to, to balance for a lot of people a lot of black people in America, because our it's it's very clearly statistical that our encounters with police officers are much more deadly than anybody else's. Yeah, are you saying they there's this idea that you're supposed to just tolerate a certain amount of police harassment because that's the price of stopping crime? Like, is that? It seems like it. It seems like the the solution isn't we change as police officers how we interact with you it's you have to put up with our extra elements of harassment because we don't want to die even though the rate at which we die is so low that we use that as an excuse to over punish over police and to to be abusive to you in situations that are very mild and casual because we've also been trained that people who look like you are more dangerous when that's also not true and so it's, it's us having to walk around as civilians with all of that on our backs. We have to be calm, we have to relax, we have to do all the things that the person with the gun should be doing. Yeah. And it falls on us. And so that that is a thing that 
we are also trying to shift in terms of how we we talk about policing, how we deal with policing, and how organizers and activists are are trying to uh, engage with policing and police unions to try to figure out ways to minimize these type of things. Yeah. Have any police officer friends seen this? Um, I don't. Not none of my cop friends have seen it, but I do know of one police officer who has seen it, uh, who's a friend of a friend and they loved it. Really? He, he's a black police officer. And I was very shocked. <laughs> I was very, I was very shocked. I, I just did not expect, uh, I expected there that to be the line where there, there, might, there might be some entertainment value in it for them. But in terms of uh, the messaging, I didn't think it would appeal to them by nature, but that's part of the conversation starting element of it, which is, you know, here's a here's a movie where there's a guy portraying the worst of you. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. Like he's portraying the worst of you because we tend to only get that. Yeah. When you look at what's happening in DC and they're literally abusing and killing police officers and they still are handling them with kid gloves, like still. and. Yeah the the contrast is so stark where you're like this is why this movie exists to show you that like the monster is so real for me and that you guys are you guys pummeled cops you guys ran them down you guys beat them up you did all these things to them and they still were nice to you <laughs> yeah. yeah they killed the cop with a fire extinguisher I yeah mean and and it, it didn't, it didn't, when you watch the videos, it didn't change the, the element in which the, the police interacted with them didn't elevate. Yeah, yeah. Whereas before BLM even showed up to DC, the, the police were lined up around the building. Yeah. It's, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to talk about, <laughs> saying how hypocritical that is feels really unnecessary. Like it's so blatantly hypocritical and ridiculous. Yeah. And they tweeted about it a little bit. I know all of us have expressed, I don't even know if frustration is the word or just like, I can't believe this happened. Like if you wrote it this way, it would be really bad. It would be, yeah. it would be too corny. It would be too ridiculous. That I started, I started working on a, a film idea with a friend about some guys who, who stormed the Capitol. And <laughs> it, does, it does not work anymore. How far along did you get? We, like, I, I know, I knew the whole story. I like, I, this is a story I had been sitting on for a movie for at least a year. Oh my God. And I knew exactly what the reason was. I knew why it was, it was, it was a, a story basically kind of grounded in, you know, how a lot of Americans feel, uh, you know, left behind by their government and, and to tell a story about people who, who are sitting at home watching people like McConnell toy around with their lives. And yeah. after, after that happened, my friend who I started working on the movie with, who was a DC guy who works in politics, he's like, I don't think this works anymore. And I was like, I don't think it does either. Because the whole build up, the whole point of it was how hard it was for them to get into the chamber. And oh when you watch what happened on, on the sixth, it was like, that was too easy. <laughs> this doesn't work. So the characters in your movie would be considered on the left, I guess, or? 
No, not even that. It was they were they were like kind of center right military guys. Oh, really? Yeah, who like had come home and just kind of found you know there's a in in LA there's there's all there's like sixty thousand homeless people. Twenty five thousand of them are veterans, and they I, I would imagine they vary on the political spectrum. But the one thing they have in common is their country failed them. Yeah, and. The feel that feeling, carrying that feeling around and watching what's happening in DC can infuriate you. And that's kind of what it was about. It was a, it was supposed to be about how, like, you know, c- giving your life for the country, putting your life on the line for the country should, should get you certain things. And one of those things that you should never be homeless. <laughs> and so uh, that was kind of the crux of the story. And then watching that happen, it was just like, well, I guess, we have to find a new story because clearly they just let you in and or maybe yeah. you go out and get that get that green lit immediately i mean i don't know how it works <laughs> wow oh so what's the plan for this film i mean is this this is going to be in contention for oscar shorts potentially yeah how are how will regular people be able to see it so right now we're in the process of we're holding screenings we are uh, in talks with various distributors and, and looking for uh, potential distributors, or uh, we're looking at also potentially self-distributing the film as well. Um, so there, we're definitely making making it possible for people to see the film. But when pe- how people will see it at, in mass or at large, um, we don't exactly know yet, and we're still working it out. We're hoping. Some of the people we're talking to will will make that possible for us. And we think, and I my hope is that the more people learn about the film, know about the film, and are hearing people's reaction to it, yeah. it will encourage, you know, a buyer to go, hey, people should see this film. It's really important, especially now. And so we I'm hoping that that encourages people to come to the table and want to, you know, clearly based on our experiences and who we've been showing you to there's a really, really good uh, uh, market for the film. And there, I also would love to turn it into a, a feature, which I have plans to, and I have uh, some pretty, funny enough, some pretty big name producers chasing me down for the feature rights to this yeah. story. Um, and so we just need, um, you know, someone to, to come to the table with us and, and want to step up and, and show this movie uh, to the masses and, coming along with that is, you know, a feature version of it, if you care that much. And so that's what we're doing currently. It's funny because normally you can say, hey, Netflix, put this on, or, you know, whoever you canceled the show, bring it back. When a thing doesn't have a home yet, who do we contact? Like if people are listening to this and really want to see it, do they reach out right. to you? Do they, how can they show yeah. I, yeah, no, I mean, that's been the That's been the situation where it's like, who, People, a lot of people know about this film from various uh, studios and networks. In some, <clears throat> in some instances, we've gotten incredible, incredible feedback coupled with, we don't do shorts or we don't do shorts yet. And so we don't, or we don't know how to like uh, program this. And then there are people who are just like, who've been talking to us and they're like, we're trying to figure it out because we like it. Yeah. And that's just taken longer than, than we liked. Um, but I mean, I think it's, having people who see the film talk about the film. It's having 
people like you who see the film and respond to it, you know, let the market know that, you know, there's a really important film that no one has, that, that no yeah. one's taken, taken ownership of that, you know, can be really good for, you know, for their, for their network or platform if they took that chance. And so we, we kind of just have buckled down and decided, you know, we're going to show the film as much as we can to, to people who, um, who need to see it, people who want to see it and uh, doing as many screens as we can this month. And uh, hopefully that translates into a steam building behind it so that people will go, we need to get that because people need to see it. And so that's kind of what we're doing now since various streamers and studios are floating around the table or, you know. I mean, so many people have said Lover's Rock was the best movie of 2020 and it's like an hour and seven minutes long. So I feel like there's room for a 31 minute movie. Yeah. I mean, Lover's Rock was amazing. And I mean, to me, this, I'm like, you're essentially just programming an episode of television. It's one episode. It's a half hour. It's a pretty solid half hour. Yeah. And uh, whether you do shorts or not, I feel like it's it's something that you guys are smart enough and big enough to figure out. And even if it's just a short movie, yeah. <laughs> it's, Lovers Rock, I see is being treated as films and television. So it's one of those things that if, if people want it, they can, they know how to do it. Yeah, th there's no reason at all this couldn't be on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu. Absolutely. Or HBO Max, or, you know, th there's no yeah. room has to be that length. It's just. I mean, look, we, we have, uh, we've shown, I think maybe all those places and we are happy to engage with them and keep engaging with them. And you know, I think it's a case of that thing that happens all the time in Hollywood where they go, oh, no one really, no one's really dancing with that girl. They're all kind of looking at her across the room. No one's really dancing. And then soon as the one guy who they don't expect to go up and dance with that girl goes and does it. Now everybody wants to dance with that girl. And we're like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll be that person. We'll be that girl standing across from waiting for you. But you know, the longer you wait, it's just, you're gonna have to fight off more guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have some really big backers for this movie. I mean, names like Sean Combs, Adam McKay, what's their involvement and how did they get involved? So Adam was a very early, uh, uh, adopter in terms of he gave us money to help make this. Um, and I sent him and his wife, Sheriff Piven, the script and they responded to it immediately. And I worked on Adam's HBO show, Showtime, the Lakers uh, drama that he's doing. And um, they gave us money and Sean, he saw the film and he just like, he took to it so quickly. He just like, I have to be a part of this. Um, and he's like, I want to do whatever it takes to to be a, not only be a part of this, but also make this known to show this to the world and use everything I have at my disposal to to make this movie, you know, seen as far as wide as possible. And he came on as a producer. And <clears throat> every name you see in those credits, those are all people who uh, who we sent the script. We told them, you know, we were trying to make this movie. They read it and they were like 
you know, how much money can I give you? How much money do you need? And they just responded to it. It wasn't anyone kind of, I didn't know Kevin Durant or Mike Conley or uh, many of those people before this, making this movie, it was just, who can we go out to in August of a, during a pandemic who will also give us money when everyone's not spending money? Yeah. And it was really the material. It really was just the material. I feel like if I had gone to them with anything else, a movie about a basketball player who's just trying to make the team like no one would have cared <laughs> but it was a movie that was about what was happening right now and we had never been more unified around that feeling and that message and I think that resonated with people on the page and it led to them giving us money Damon Lindelof uh, all the names you see in the in the special thanks those are all just donors and, and people who finance the movie. Wow. Are there strings attached when that happens or are they just like, I like your script, go do it? No, it was, I mean, it was so sincerely like, the world needs to see this, I'm gonna help you make it. Like that was what, was, that was what we were hearing across the board. It was, this isn't, this is amazing. Like uh, I'll, I'll send a check. Like it was, it was really special the way it came together because it was one of those situations where once I wrote it, I wrote it in, in five days in July. And then it was me and Martin, my co-director, were just like, well, now we have to, you know, find the money. And so we just started checking our resources. Who do we know? Who do we know that has money? Who do we have connections to that has like enough wealth that they could give us, you know, 10 grand or five grand or whatever the case may be. And we just kind of pieced it all together until we got to where we thought our budget was. And then we ended up raising half a million dollars in 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 a month and that was what led to us being able to do everything so fast because the movie happened so fast i mean it was written in july we raised the money in august and we shot it in, in five days in september and all of that rushed planning and rushed uh permits and rushed locations like cost money and so we knew we had to we had to raise a lot and uh, one of the one of the the downsides of that was we spent a lot of money on on COVID. You know, you have to have COVID protocols, and that ends up inflating your budget beyond what you actually would have needed to spend. And so it became a challenge to just get all the things in order. And the scariest thing was when we were when we were beginning filming because no one would ensure COVID production or ensure productions at that time, especially if, if one person got sick on our production, the movie was over. Yeah. We like, we burned, we essentially burned the cash like the Joker in, in, <laughs> in the dark night. We just set fire to half a million dollars. You have fun guys. Um, and so at every stage we were kind of just like jumping over hurdles. And I, I got, I found Joey and, and in August, a friend connected us and James Samuels, who, who was so instrumental in making this movie happen. And he, he connected me with Joey and Joey said yes. And Andrew Howard was already a friend of mine. And he was probably the first person I told before I wrote a single word and he had already said yes. He didn't even read it, he just said yes. Wow. He's, just, he's like, I'm doing it. And then when he read it, he was like, I'm definitely doing it. And, uh, Zaria, who's my girlfriend, just kind of watched me go through the whole process. And um, uh, we just, 
Flacco down and did everything we could to make the movie happen. It was such a like fly by the seat of our pants, like indie film experience of, you know, casting, raising money at the same time, being in pre-production while you're still raising money because you don't have time to wait. So you're hoping the money comes in. Like yeah. we're like going after money and we're kind of like spending it, but we don't all have it all. Yeah, we're like hoping people follow through and then everyone, everyone came through and by the end of September, after five days of shooting, we had a money and we had a movie and no one got sick. Not a single person got sick in the entire process. And um, we edited the movie all of October. So I finished writing the movie July 27th. We finished filming it September 27th and we locked picture on October 27th. Oh my and, God. And then the rest was like, okay, now how do we, <laughs> how do we get this out into the world? Yeah. Yeah, that was a journey. I mean, we talk to so many filmmakers now who just say you have to just start. You just have to get it started because no one, more than ever, no one's going to give you permission. Yeah. Warner Brothers isn't going to suddenly appear and say, here's $10 million. You just have to do the thing and you have to raise money. And most people don't have an Emmy and they don't yeah. have the connections that you have, but you do have to figure out what can you afford to shoot and just yeah. raise the money and shoot it. Yeah, I mean, we were pretty much, we didn't have a, a set number in our head. We just started asking people for money. And we knew whatever we got would be the quality of film we could afford to make. And actually, we ended up making a movie that's so much better than what we could actually afford to make just because so many people responded to the material in a way where they were doing favors for us because mm -hmm. they were like, we just want to support this message. We'll give you this huge discount or we'll do this for free. And it was so, so generous. And we were so grateful because, you know, we felt the same way. We were like, look, we don't have the money necessarily to do this at cost, but like, if you believe in this message, um, can you help us? And like, that's how we ended up with James Poyser as our, as our uh, doing our score. I mean, like, how do you just go get James Poyser from the roots to do the score for your short? Like you, you have to, you have to one, know, know someone who knows him and you also have to convince him that it's worth uh, not being paid a lot of money for. And he very much believed in it. And he, man, he worked so hard and was so available to us while they were shooting Fallon to work on the score for this film. And Bruce, Bruce Hornsby was so gracious about the film and the message that he, you know, he gave us that song. Oh. Know, and, and I wrote that into the movie before I asked him, I just was shooting for the stars. And, <laughs> and then I went and, and, I, and I emailed him and, and I said, you know, basically like, you know, here's what I'm doing. And this, I think this song is as relevant today as it was when you wrote it. And I would love for you to like, let me put it in my short film. I do not have the money <laughs> to pay for it, but you know, if you believe in this message as much as I do, like, can you help us? And he said, yes. And, and the same goes with the Jill Scott song that you hear uh, toward the end of the movie. And naturally like Joey's, Joey Badass is the star of the movie. And so you hear his song over the credits, but all those things happened so organically. It was just people believing in this message in this moment and wanting to help us make this movie. Yeah. Do you have any advice for anybody who wants to break in at the very start? I mean, you broke in as a writer, but you had a pretty significant pivot. I mean, I didn't realize you were involved in Showtime until you just mentioned it, but 
you play basketball at Cal State, Long Beach. I'm not really a sports guy, but I'm extremely confident. My brothers like came and watched you. Um, That's (laughs) that's super cool. Um, So how did you make that pivot? How did you break in and how can, what can people learn from what you did? Um, What I, what I did, the way it happened for me was uh, John Stewart hired me to work at the daily show. I mean, that was the biggest, that was the biggest turning point. And that, that came from, I think, just preparedness, mm-hmm. prepared for an opportunity because, and I probably would, that would probably be my biggest piece of advice is um, I did this panel for Variety and someone asked, you know, what's the best way to get your foot in the door? And, uh, and Bruce Miller, the showrunner from uh, Handmaid's Tale, mm-hmm. he has this saying that he goes, you know, stop worrying about the door and focus on your foot. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and I started, I started repeating that phrase from him. And then, but I always give him credit for it, even though he doesn't care. I always give him credit for it. Um, but I, it's, it's just such great advice. It's don't worry about the door, focus on your foot because the door will open. But if the door opens and you aren't prepared for it, you don't know how many more opportunities you'll get. And so for me, when I was sitting at home unemployed, you know, submitting to shows and hoping that I would get hired somewhere. The Daily Show was my dream job. It was the only show I wanted to work on. I would have taken any job, but that was the like the Mount Everest for me. And I was just at home every day practicing writing every version of every late night show. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I would, I would, my routine was I would wake up, I would go to the gym, I would come home, I would watch the news, and then I would write jokes for every style of late night host. I would write for Kimmel, I'd write Letterman jokes, I'd write uh, uh, Fallon, or or, who was on the show, it was Conan. And and then I would watch The Daily Show religiously. I watched The Daily Show since since I was like 18. And so I knew John's voice like the back of my hand. And so when the time came, uh, when I talk about preparedness, an opportunity came where I was doing stand up at the improv and I was working with a guy named Rob Kuttner who used to work at The Daily Show. And um, Kristen Shaw's husband had left the show and there was a writing opening. And so I asked Rob, you know, I go like, you know, what's The Daily Show submission packet? Like, like I wasn't even asking him to get me in the door. I was just like, well, how, what does it look like? So I can be prepared in terms of, cause I could find all these other shows packets either online or I had gotten them to try to submit. And he just put me on the list of people to submit. And, and I got an email from Tim Carvel, who now runs John Oliver's show on HBO to submit for the show. And it freaked me out because I just, not only what I, I was prepared for everyone, but John in the way of like having actual experience with what their show's formula or, or packaging looks like. <clears throat> and so I just did it. I just did it. I took what I knew about the show and what I knew about his voice, which I which I'd been listening to for ten years at that point, and I channeled it into that packet. And you know, I just I have a general love for news and politics, so I knew all that stuff already. It was in me. I didn't have to go search out news stories or how to write jokes about the news or politics. It was already there, and that just translated into me creating a successful packet <clears throat> and getting hired at the Daily Show, and that job is what changed everything because 
it's such a validation to be, you know, get a stamp of approval from John Stewart. And from there, everything just took off. Like once I left the show, I was able to pretty much do anything. I mean, even while you're there, people are offering you jobs. Um, but that was the biggest, that was the biggest change, turning point in my life in, in terms of my career. But I think it comes from preparation. Like you just have to be doing the work before the thing shows up. You have to work as if you know you're gonna get it because the worst thing that can happen to you is that thing like with Rob, you get an opportunity and you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. You know, everybody who's written a novel or who's written a screenplay has kind of been in that stage that you were in when you were trying to duplicate the voices of everybody in Late Night. Incredibly hard to do, incredible amount of time. And you must just tell yourself at some point, it's like, why am I doing this? They're never going to pay any attention to me. But you know that you're good. That's, that's what keeps you going. You know you're good. So how did you reassure yourself that you were good? How did you know that you were good when, when you had that voice in your head saying, you know, give it up. I, I, I was, I got my reassurance from how often, a couple of things. One, how often I heard late night jokes and jokes on shows like Colbert or Stewart that were very similar to jokes I'd written. Yeah. And then from people I knew in the comedy world I'm doing stand up in LA, where you encounter a lot of TV writers and, you know, celebrity comics who I could kind of show things and would like give me their feedback. Yeah. And so I would I would meet guys who wrote for late night shows um, or who used to write for late night shows and they would read like my monologue joke packet and would they be like, like at any, like you're ready when the time comes. Like these are, these are our level. These are at the level they should be at to work on one of these shows. It's just, you know, getting an opportunity at that point for me. And that came from just days and days and days of of committing to getting the voices right for those guys because you don't know which one's going to call first but you have to the skill you have to have is to know how to interpret their voice and so I would write like five or ten jokes per show every day and then just put it away and it be and part of it is there's partly just having to believe in yourself even though you don't have the reassurance because when I was writing that daily show packet I'll be the first to tell you I was, I was like, this is either the worst thing I've ever written or the best thing I've ever written. <laughs> and like, I'm going to find out very soon <laughs> which one it is. And <clears throat> there was a moment where in writing that packet, I felt like I turned a corner where I was like, I think this is good. This feels good. Yeah. This feels like I've, I've hit a stride where I know what I'm doing. The jokes are coming pretty easily. And this feels good. And that, at the time, because you don't have anything to compare it to, I'm like, that either means I'm doing this wrong, very wrong, or I'm doing it very right. And so it wasn't until I got reassured by going, getting through every stage of hiring at the show that now in my professional life, when I feel that feeling, I recognize it as, oh, I'm doing the thing right again. Because I, I have this anxiety I always have this anxiety about like is this good no matter what I've done like Emmys and all the things like it's still as a writer you're still never sure until someone else sees it and it was the same process with Two Distant Strangers where you know when I finished the script I'm like I don't know how people are going to respond to this I hope people think it's good and 
I'm going through the same thing mentally now writing this movie for Apple with Idris Elba where I'm like, I just hit 120 pages yesterday and I'm still like, is it good? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, will people like it? I don't, I don't know, but it's one of those things where there's a baseline quality to it because you're a professional and you know how to do it, but it's like, how do you take it to that next level? And you spend so much time with it by yourself in solitude and, and working on it and writing it that you don't, you, you, start, you start to lose touch with, you know, I just have to do it. I don't know if it's like what someone's gonna think about this until they read it. And so I just hope that it's at a level where I can like, you know, keep it at a, a certain level or raise it to a certain level. But you just, when you're, when you're in it, man, it's so hard to know, especially as a writer until you get feedback. But over time, as you get good, as you, when you do things that people respond to well, you start to know, you get a, a stronger barometer for quality as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give us any preview of the Idris Elba movie and how, how it's going or is it too early? Um, it's, I mean, I just wrote the the most <clears throat> pivotal scene last night uh, in the movie. Um, I don't, I don't want to spoil it for you guys. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, don't put it up on the podcast. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, 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 it was really, it came together really fun. Naturally, I'll end up going back and looking at it today and wanting to change half of it. Um, but it's, it's been a really, really great process of writing a spy, you know, action-y comedy in the vein of Mr. and Mrs. Smith that takes place in Africa. And it's so cool to research and, and see these locations and look at how they can be used to do something we've either never seen before or something we've only seen done with people like James Bond or, or things like that, where you don't tend to have two black spies in the same movie kind of like kicking ass. And uh, so I like to think of this movie as, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith meets John Wick in the sense of like, I love real John Wick style violence in movies, but yeah. I also love romantic comedies and, and things like that. And so my, try, what I'm trying to do is you know, merge the two here where you get the best of both, where you get that Mr. and Mrs. Smith type movie, but it's it's as entertaining action-wise as when John's, John Wick's action scenes kick in, but it's as like sexy and fun as like watching Brad and Angelina together. I don't know who we're gonna pair with Idris, but you know, I think we got half that problem solved. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in quarantine when everybody's life is kind of, you know, twisted around and they don't have the opportunity to sort of bounce things off of people like you were able to do. Um, yeah. Any suggestions, and I'll, I'll close out on this, any suggestions for how people should be writing now? I think we have a unique opportunity right now. I think it was, it was stronger when quarantine first started because everyone was afraid to go out. Now people are kind of like not caring and just going out and doing whatever. But I think the fact that we still have a stay at home order can be taken advantage of in the sense of this is the perfect time to work on whatever it is you need to work on, whatever it is you have to work on. That thing that for the last pre-coronavirus, the last two years that you've been like, I wanna write this thing. I kind of been thinking about this thing and I just don't have time because I have to go to work and I have to do all these things. And people invite me out and my friends want me to go out all the time. 
now's the perfect time to, you have an excuse yeah. to stay at home and work on your thing. Yeah. And you have, you have an excuse to stay home and be unbothered and write your novel or start your outline or start your treatment or write your movie or your pilot. And the thing is, they seem big at first in your face, especially if you've never done it. You're like, I have this idea, but a pilot, man, that's like 30 pages or a drama pilot is like 60 pages. You know, that's, if you, if you wrote three pages a day for a, a, a half hour pilot, you'd be done in a week and a half. <laughs> a week and a half we've been in quarantine for a year yeah like you would have you would have written 52 pilots or 50 <laughs> pilots if you just like no matter how good they were if you just the repetition of writing like if you if you want to write a, a feature film if you were a 90 page feature film and you wrote three pages a day like you'd be amazed at how fast you end up with a tangible thing to, to that you've accomplished, no matter the quality of it. Doing it is, is a huge accomplishment because 90 plus percent of people don't even actually finish. So that puts you ahead of so many more people in the game who call themselves writers, who wanna be writers. Just getting to that last page, you're, you're better off than 95% of the people who are calling themselves writers in this town because most people never finish and they use it and make excuses for why they don't finish. And so right now is the perfect opportunity to, to just buckle down and do the thing. And now that the, everyone's online now more than ever, including us, like writers and producers and directors. And so you have even more access to people who you can befriend or you can uh, possibly get to look at something. And it's just, you know, reaching out or developing relationships. I mean, a lot of people, I'll, I'll say this too, a lot of people won't read people so they don't know because of legal issues but you know if there are people that you you know and trust like if you want a friend of yours who might be a producer or who might know someone to read a thing they're at home now so they're more likely to kind of like kick back and take half an hour or an hour to read your script or read your your outline or whatever and so <clears throat> when this is over if you've ever had any desire to be a writer in any sense and you come out of this where you started, I think you've wasted that time because this was the most undistracted I've ever been from the outside world. And in that, within that, I wrote a short, shot a short, <laughs> finished it, wrote a movie, uh, wrote two other pilots. And that's all because like, I was, I already had the work ethic, but then I was undistracted. Like there was no one saying, come to this event, come to my house, come to this party, come do this thing. And so, it's like, I got to see what my life looks like undistracted. Now, when this is over, I'm probably gonna go to less things because I know how much work I can get done by not going out so much. And, and I think this is the perfect time to find out who you really are and if you really want it within this business, within this industry. Like if, you're, if you have what it takes to survive here, you're gonna find out right now because if you can't stop and write a script or write a treatment or, or do a thing now when you have absolutely no distractions and you or you can have no distractions, you're never gonna do it in the regular world where like when we open back up to being busy and being able to go out and being able to just like do whatever we want, you just won't. Hey, it's Tim. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our amazing guest, Trayvon Free. If you have writer friends who are looking for motivation, 
I would suggest sending them this episode. I really love what he said at the end. And subscribe now to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode, Eric Stoyer interviewing Sam Pollard about his astonishing new film, MLK, FBI. We also always appreciate your reviews of the podcast, and I post every single podcast we do in our newsletter, which you can sign up for at moviemaker.com slash newsletter. Besides this one, we also do the Low Key Podcast and the Industry Podcast. If you don't want to miss any of them, moviemaker.com slash newsletter. Thanks. See you very soon. Really appreciate you listening.